2 Samuel chapter 3, and we are now up to verse 16, uh, verse 6, excuse me. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. When Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring me call Saul's daughter uh, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping be behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would anoint the uh, presentation of it, help us to understand applications in our lives, perhaps even applications that I do not bring. And Father, may you be exalted in all of our responses to your holy scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, politics can definitely be ugly. Uh, even on our side, there are people who seem like they could kill with their words and they demean uh, other people's characters. And unfortunately, it seems that anything is fair game so long as it enables our side to win. Uh, some of the exaggerated caricatures of uh, Obama are totally uncalled for. I think there is no justification for the lies and the slander being spoken about him. Uh, the truth is bad enough. <laughs> uh, we don't need to speak the lies and the slander, but power politics goes on in all parties. Uh, when there is a president who gets in trouble, uh, there's always scapegoats who can take the fall for him. In fact, this last week I read uh, an article about somebody that allegedly was uh, scapegoated in the Bachman campaign in Iowa. Um, uh, we uh, see this kind of thing happening all of the times. We see during the uh, battles uh, in the primary caucuses and uh, primaries in the caucuses with regard to uh, Ron Paul, uh, ugly, ugly uh, battles that were uh, going on. I've seen it at the Douglas County Convention. I've seen this with both the bad guys as well as the good guys. And we're going to see that in this chapter that David begins to succumb to some of the power politics games that Abner has been playing. 
And it kind of reminds me of a, a game we used to play when I was a kid. We called it uh, King of the Hill. Sometimes we called it King of the Castle. What you'd do is you'd stand on top of the sofa, well, until mom chased you off, and uh, then you'd go find a mound of dirt. And the, the key was to be just a little bit higher than everybody else. That was the name of the game. And, of course, you got other people pushing and shoving, trying to get you off that mound so they can get up onto uh, the mound. And that's kind of a, a parable of at least a little bit of the power grasping that was going on uh, with Abner. Uh, David really does try hard later on in this chapter to avoid this kind of grasping for power. But for some people, it is the prized possession. It is the thing that they live for. And it was certainly Abner's goal in life. And let's go ahead and begin at verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Now let's divide that verse up into two parts. Uh, the first part summarizes the long war of uh, northern aggression uh, against da uh, David. Abner was not satisfied to be the king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Uh, he did not think a Judah should have ever seceded. He wanted uh, to have control there. So there's a, a spirit of control that's working uh, behind the scenes in Abner's life. And so the first part of the verse highlights a thirst for more power that's seen in many of these wars for uh, of aggression that you see around the world. And actually, if you want to have a very vivid description of that, read some of the debates that went on in Congress in the 1860s leading up to the war between the states. It's, it's amazing. I mean, talk about power politics. You'll see it there uh, to the max. But Abner also had an internal war going on within his administration, and this internal conflict revolved around his push for more and more control of the northern government. Uh, it's summarized in the second part of the verse. Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. He was trying to take over. Now, there was resistance to his grasping for power, but eventually he was able to get more and more power uh, over, that, uh, over that country. Now, if you take a look down at verse 17, you'll see the source of that resistance. Uh, you don't find it here. In the, it's just hinted at in our passage. But take a look at verses uh, 17 and following. It says, Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Very interesting verse. Uh, he's saying in the, over the, sometime over the last seven and a half years, there has been talk amongst these elders for replacing Ishbosheth and putting David uh, on the throne of northern Israel. So it wasn't an easy thing for Abner to be uh, gaining more and more control over this northern kingdom. The elders weren't too keen on it. Now, he was a strong man. He was in charge of the military. They were very loyal to him. So he could have killed off a few of the, uh, the competitors, but uh, he decided not to do that. He played power politics. He played one party off against another party. There was some political intrigue that was going on. And he used the threat of external dangers uh, to try to gain more powers because the Philistines were trying to completely wipe them off the face of the map. He no doubt asked them for emergency powers. I think uh, the first three chapters of this book all speak to that. And chapter 2, verse 10, says that within two years, 
Abner had enough power where Ishbosheth was no longer calling the shots on anything. Uh, he was a puppet king in every respect. Now, that wasn't even enough for Abner. He wanted to be the sole king. Uh, and uh, he couldn't do it all at once. So he was a grasping, conniving man. He was the perfect image of some, at least, of the power-hungry politicians in Washington, D.C., who have been gaining a stronger and stronger hold on the House of Washington. Uh, in his speech to the Virginia Constitutional Convention, James Madison spoke of this constant grasping for power. He says it goes on in every country. It goes on in every form of government. And he said you especially need to watch out for it uh, when there are emergencies, there are dangers, there are catastrophes, because what will happen is the, the magistrates will be saying, you know, for this emergency, I need more uh, powers. And they take these powers with the pretense of protecting your liberties when they actually are using it. It's a fascinating speech. But anyway, uh, in part of that speech, he said, the essence of government is power. And power, lodged as it must be in human hands, will ever be liable to abuse. In monarchies, the interests and happiness of all may be sacrificed to the caprice and passions of a despot. In aristocracies, the rights and welfare of the many may be sacrificed to the pride and cupidity of the few. In republics, the great danger is that the majority may not sufficiently respect the rights of the minorities. And so what Madison said is you really need to cha chain down this lust for political power with checks and balances. And by the way, most of those checks and balances that our founding fathers put in place, they've been removed. They've been removed in the name of, of efficiency. The Abners have been very, very successful. And over the past 150 years, uh, we haven't just given unconstitutional powers to the president. We've ceded unbelievable powers to agencies and committees that are utterly unaccountable. And so verse 6, I think, is a beautiful description of our country. Because of emergencies and wars and other necessities, that's verse 6a, we have given more and more powers to the central government and they've gained hold of the House of Washington. That's verse 6b. That's classic play, and even Republicans have succumbed to this power politics. Now, the final step of Abner's control, it may seem a little bit odd, shocking to our sensibilities in the 21st century, but this was common. Uh, this was a common symbol that Abner has taken over as, as a king. Uh, what he does is he takes Rizpah, Saul's concubine, he went into her, and this is as literal a laying hold of the house of Saul as uh, you could get. Verse 7, and Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, Abner never denies that charge. In fact, commentators believe he slept with Rizpah in a very public way to deliberately show that he was the ruler. Now, one commentator, uh, Kenneth Chaffin, says, since the king's wives and concubines became the property of his successor, and actually, let me stop there before I keep reading, because this was not biblical law that allowed for this, not at all. Abner was simply following the, the very common custom of virtually every country in the world back then. This was worldly wisdom, not biblical wisdom. And interestingly, Absalom, David's son, is going to do exactly the same thing in chapter 16. In fact, 
Uh, let me go ahead and uh, I'll read you a section. Take a look at 16, verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. So this was a common symbol back then that the person had taken, taken over uh, the kingship. Isn't it amazing how far professing believers can go and still claim to be believers? Now, Abner was not, but he pretended to be. Absalom was not, but he sure pretended to be. You couldn't even be in the position of king without at least professing to be uh, a believer. And this, by the way, is what to Tocqueville uh, said in his uh, classic book written in the 18, early 1800s. Uh, this is what he meant when he said, in the United States, the sovereign authority is religious and consequently hypocrisy must be common. He was saying, basically, the politicians will pretend to be anything that they need to be in order to get into power, in order to stay in power. And that's exactly what Abner did. But anyway, we, we're digressing here. But back to what this commentator was saying, Chaffin said, since a king's wives and concubines became the property of his successor, for Abner to take one of Saul's concubines was an act of treason. It meant that he was claiming to be king. This was a declaration of a coup. Uh, so Rizpah becomes the symbol of his, ten, uh, his intentions, and he, uh, Rizpah stands in tension with Michal, whom David took. David and Abner are doing exactly the same thing in terms of what they're trying to communicate back in those days. Now, let's move on to the second half of verse 7. Now, this public action of Abner immediately forced Ishbosheth to have some kind of a reaction. I mean, he wouldn't even be a, a king in name uh, if he didn't uh, react uh, and try to oppose this. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubines? Ishbosheth is finally standing up to Abner, but it's too late. Abner has orchestrated things so that Ishbosheth has zero power. Who's he going to complain to? Who's going to defend him? The military won't. They like Abner. And the elders are not going to stand on his side. They don't even like Ishbosheth. They want to replace Ishbosheth with David, so he's stuck. He has zero uh, power. Uh, so, uh, uh, using this tirade, Abner not only intimidates, but he also makes Ishbosheth look like an ungrateful wretch. Look at verses 8 through 9. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. He's angry that Ishbosheth has dared to challenge him. I mean, in terms of turning over the kingdom, there's evidence that he had planned to do this all along, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But what I want to do right now, I want to show five things that are very clear just on the surface of those two verses. They show, first of all, that Ishbosheth had no power. I think it's very clear he was a puppet. Uh, he may have looked like he was running the country, but for at least five and a half of the last seven years, Abner had been calling all of the shots. And everybody knew it. They knew he was running the show. And that's why chapter 2, verse 10 says that Ishbosheth reigned only two of those seven and a half years. And when you're analyzing American politics, 
Uh, you shouldn't look only at the pretty faces that are running for public office. Uh, look at the people behind the scenes. They're the controllers. They're the abners. And those controllers, for the most part, run the staff uh, in D.C. and in the agencies, no matter who is in office. There are unelected people who really run this country with the elected officials only making superficial surface changes on a tiny percentage of the, the things that really matter in terms of running a country. And congressmen, many congressmen have admitted this. They say it's, quote-unquote, impossible to change uh, this. The bills are massive. They're so massive that most of the congressmen can't even read one of the bills, you know, that that come before them. They just have too much work to be able to go through all of that information. And so there's other people who vet that information, and it's the same people that are there, uh, no matter which administration is in office. The workload is impossible otherwise. Not all paperwork even gets to the Supreme Court judges. Uh, a couple of years ago, a Supreme Court judge um, complained uh, he thought he was going to be getting paperwork for a case that he wanted to be looking at. He never did get the paperwork because there are people who vet all of the information that goes to the Supreme Court judges, and these guys have their own political agendas. And uh, they don't have the time to read it all. It's physically impossible. Why are the same handlers that were behind Carter, Reagan, Bush Sr., uh, Clinton, and Bush Jr., uh, still in D.C. at the planning meetings uh, with uh, the current administration. It's just remarkable. I recognize the same faces that I've been seeing there uh, over, over many, many years. The point is we shouldn't look at Ishbosheth. He's the illusion. He's the puppet. We need to work against and be praying against the Abners who are behind the scenes. Now, is this conspiratorial? Yes, I... Uh, fully admit to it. I'm a conspiratorialist, but I'm not the kind of conspiratorialist who believes there's nothing that can be done about this. In fact, one of the books that I recommend is a book by Gary North. It's called Conspiracy, A Biblical View. You can get it free online. And what he does is he shows, yes, there's always been conspiracies as long as mankind has been around because Satan is at work constantly trying to manipulate things. But he said, hey, we ought to have faith. Psalm 1 says that all of these conspiracies that are trying to throw off the bonds of Christ will fail. They will fall just like Abner fell. And so don't buy into the conspiratorial things that just make you throw up your hands and say, what's the point? You know, they're always controlling things. No, no, we need to have a biblical view of these uh, people who are trying to throw off the bonds of Christ. Okay, the second thing that these two verses show is that Abner thinks that Ishbosheth should just shut up and be grateful that he isn't dead. Okay, that's the extent of the graciousness in power politics. Go along to get along. Upset the cart, you might get shot or you might get run out of town. Uh, here is the implied message that an Abner gives to every elder, so to speak, uh, who goes to Washington, D.C. If you go along with my agendas, I will let you get along in Washington, D.C., but if not... I'll sick the media, the advocacy groups, the FBI on you. You'll get investigated and slandered. You'll have the IRS do audits. I'll pay, play every power play I can against you until you are absolutely miserable and want to quit. That's Abner. That's Abner. He pretends that he's been a hero for the last seven and a half years in letting this guy be a king or pretend to be a king. 
when in reality he's been using uh, Ishbosheth. Uh, and so in power politics, people are used and they are discarded all the time. It's one of the reasons I hate politics so much. Uh, even the Republicans do this. Even Ronald Reagan did this, uh, as much as I like Reagan. Those two verses show thirdly that Abner knew all along that God had prophesied that David was supposed to be the king of all Israel. God had prophesied that. And actually in verses 17 and 18, uh, he reaffirms that belief. The elders knew it. Seems like everybody knew David was supposed to be king. So he's had the revelation for a long time. He has ignored that revelation. Now he is using that revelation. So even though he hypocritically pledged faithfulness to, to one nation under God, yeah, right, uh, he was flagrantly disobeying God's revelation concerning David all along. And the weird thing about this, he's now using the very revelation he's been ignoring, he's using it against Ishbosheth. Okay? He's a living hypocrisy. But I think Christians do this all the time. Uh, forget about politics. We, we do it. And the church people flagrantly violate God's law. And as soon as you get on their case, oh, they're quick to quote God's law. Judge not that you be not judged. They know that verse at least. And, and so we see this. That's Abner. And politicians do this all the time. They will appeal to the Constitution when it suits them, and they'll usually take it out of context. When they know full well, they're usually just ignoring that Constitution. They are Abners. Abners feel no tension whatsoever between using a Constitution, a law, the Bible, any other authority when it suits them, and ignoring it when it does not suit them. And uh, David tries to play this, these power game, power politics games, He's not very good at it. You almost have to be a psychopath to be able to be as consistently lying and in hypocrisy as Abner does. Fourth, these verses prepare us to realize better than David did that Abner had absolutely no respect for David whatsoever. Now, Joab could see through the conniving. He knew exactly what was going on. But David apparently took Abner at his word, and the reason I say he had no respect for David is in the words, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? As far as Abner is concerned, dog's head and Judah are synonyms, okay? They're equally derogatory words. He had absolutely no respect for the southern kingdom and anything that it stood for, and uh, when he says dog's head, he's referring to David. He's calling David a dog's head. Head. And so he has a very, very low opinion of David in the South, but boy, can he be sweet as peaches when he's trying to negotiate a deal with David. Hypocrisy. We cannot be taken in by Abners, even if they present themselves as our only options. You're falling into the game of power politics when you let the establishment force you to pick between two equally disastrous options. Now, if you want to vote for one of those options, that's up to you. I mean, that's, that's your decision. I'm not going to argue with you, but don't uh, let them tell you the illusion or convince you there, there really is only two options. Vote your conscience. Okay, fifth, he sees no ethical issue with his sleeping with this woman. He treats it as trivial, something Ishbosheth should not complain about. He was saying, in effect, how dare you challenge me? I mean, I'm the one who's given you the privileges that you have in any way. Why are you so upset that I'm now declaring myself to be king by sleeping with her? I've been king all along. You know I've called the shots. You know it. 
None of this speaks well of Abner's character, and it prepares the readers to not feel sorry at all when Joab murders Abner. Now, we're not going to justify what Joab does at all, but God's sovereignty, his providence rules over everything, including the ridiculous sins of other people. You know, you've got two conspirators who are canceling each other out in the case of Joab and uh, of Abner and uh, frustrating their purposes, but accomplishing God's purposes. Now, David, as I mentioned, is not a good player in this power politics game, and God mercifully spares him later on in this chapter, and we'll look at that on another Sunday. But here's the point. If God can overrule the intricate conspiracies of an Abner, and he can overrule the rash sins of a Joab, God can continue to overrule things in, in America, no matter how bad things get in America. But it's very important we keep our hands clean in the process. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we see that Abner's rebellion against human authority flowed from an earlier rebellion against God. And this is as it has always been in history. If you reject the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, there is no logical reason why you would be bound by any of the other commandments. This is why I've always said uh, you cannot simply have the last six commandments apply to a nation. You reject commandment one, there, there's, there, there's really nothing logically uh, that, that says all of the other commandments can't be negotiable. And this is why Justice Roy Moore's Ten Commandments movement is not a trivial thing. It is foundational. The Lord of a nation determines the ethics of that nation. And I've already taken quite a bit of time talking about those verses, so um, I'm not going to say much more, but let me read verses 9 and 10 again. May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, the author records this speech to make it clear, hey, David was right all along, and even his enemies have had to come to agree with that. Okay, in verse 11, in the first part of verse 12, it is crystal clear who is calling the shots in Israel. It says, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. He feared him. Fear is part of the game of power politics. It's what the GLBT movement is trying to do when it picks on Chick-fil-A exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to intimidate any other onlooking corporations. Hey, if you don't support us, this is what's going to happen to you. You better be afraid. Uh, fear, fear of uh, uh, foreign enemies, fear of terrorism within the country, fear of the media ganging up on you, fear of losing your chair in the Senate, fear of the homosexual lobby, uh, you know, coming after you, etc., etc., etc. Any number of fears that Abner's will use to get their way. Ishbosheth knows who's in charge, so he totally backs off. Abner knows, I'm not going to have any trouble with Ishbosheth. He knows who's boss in this case. He's going to keep his mouth shut, just like most Americans keep their mouths shut on the most important issues. They're fearful. They don't want flack. They don't want pushback. But hey, we're not called to be Ishbosheths, are we? We're not called to respond in politics to fear. We must live by faith. Moving on, verse 12 says, Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? 
Abner declares with that statement that the land belongs to him, to Abner. I'm in charge here. From now on, you're going to be dealing with me. Goes on saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Now, you make a covenant with the king, not with the general of the armies. So, in effect, Abner has declared himself to be the ruler of Israel, and rather than approaching David as a loser, what he's doing is he's approaching David as an equal. I'm the king of a country, so that he can negotiate a sweet deal for himself once the unification of the two countries, which is inevitably going to happen anyway, when it happens, he wants to be in a position where he can negotiate a good position for himself. It's amazing how many principles of Machiavelli's book, The Prince, Abner has put in place. This is Machiavellianism masterfully played out. Now, what has confused some people is this question. Okay, Phil, if you're right, why did he try to get absolute power and immediately hand the kingdom over to David? Isn't that a contradiction? It is not. As one commentator pointed out, he was in an impossible situation, and this is a masterful play on Abner's part. He's maneuvering himself to be in a position where he can come out of this, no matter what happens to the country, with a sweet deal. Uh, first of all, let me answer the question, uh, why would he even find it necessary to hand over the kingdom if he wants power, if he already has power? Well, there were a number of things that were forcing Abner to do something new, and if you take a look down again at verses 17 through 18, you will see that one of his power bases uh, was becoming very restive. They were tired of Abner's tyranny. Verse 17. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. And again, I think it's so, so interesting. At some point during the past seven and a half years, maybe it was the whole seven and a half years, there were at least some leaders who were murmuring among themselves that they wanted David to be king. This is the beginnings of a contemplated interposition, okay? They were thinking of resisting Abner, and the exclamation mark in the first phrase of verse 18 shows that Abner is just a little bit exasperated over this frustration of his aims. But he gives them their wish, but on his terms. On his terms, Machiavellians always make sure that even concessions are on their terms and in their favor. Now, I want to briefly comment on that unrest. We are having the stirrings of such discontent in America, praise the Lord. States are beginning to pass laws to protect the citizens against Obamacare or against tyrannical federal mandates. New Hampshire has just passed a number of interposition laws, including one law that is explicitly mandated that um, uh, juries be instructed. Uh, they can be instructed by their, um, by their attorney, I mean, the attorney, the defense attorney, that they have the right of jury nullification. Well, that, that existed all the way uh, through the early parts uh, of America, but it's been robbed. This is, uh, again, interposition against tyrannical judges. And there are other states that are doing a very similar thing. So what does Abner do here? He does some of the same things that rhino Republicans have been doing in the last two years. In verse 18, take a look at it there, Abner sees the writing on the wall. He acts like he's in agreement with them. He says, now then, do it. 
For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. Wow, what a switcheroo. I mean, in private, he's just told Ishbosheth, David's a dog's head. And now in public, oh, he's cheerleader for David. He's a cheerleader for God's revelation. Okay, again, you see the, uh, the, the politician coming out in him. He's licked his finger, and he's suddenly discovered that the wind's blowing a different direction than he is going. And so all of a sudden, he's a Tea Party leader, Right? Yeah, I've always been in favor of the Tea Party. He goes to the Tea Party meetings and he tells them, yeah, I share your ideals. Yeah, right, 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 right. And I'm, I'm saying it this way uh, facetiously because you know all around us we see the applications of this kind of a text. The rhinos, they don't even remotely hold to the economics uh, principles of the Tea Party and just turns my stomach to see these modern Abners in the Senate and in the Congress. And Joab, he's, when he finds out about this, he's thinking, yeah, right. Abner's going to do exactly the same thing to David, or at least he's going to try, that he was doing uh, to, to, to Ishbosheth. And I'm not going to have anything whatsoever to do with that. Now, unfortunately, we're going to be seeing that Joab, even though he was a, uh, a Tea Party guy, he was the true deal in terms of Tea Party principles, he did not always follow God's law in the way in which he resisted tyranny. Uh, he took care of the problem by murdering Abner, and we'll look at that later, another day. Uh, no, that's not the way. The wrong methodology. Even our methods must be informed by the Scriptures. And so problems aren't just with the enemy. In politics, we are our own worst enemies because we don't know and we don't live out the full law of God. But in any case, this verse spoke of the restiveness of the elders. So he, he's got trouble within one of his essential power bases. But in addition to that, what's his second um, power base? It's his military. And he's experiencing problems within his mi uh, military. In Chronicles, First Chronicles, we discover some of his military people have been defecting to David. And it's becoming more weak. And First uh, Samuel says that he's beginning to lose ground rapidly to David. And if he doesn't do something quickly, David's going to overrun all of the uh, northern Israel, and he's going to lose everything. So Abner, being the sly fellow that he is, he realizes he needs to quickly make a bold move. He doesn't like losing. He needs to make a public statement that he is king. That's his taking of Rizpah, so that he can negotiate a sweet deal with David in a united kingdom that's inevitably going to happen. He anticipates the worst. He tries to make the best of it by stepping in as the country's leader. That is what is going on in the text. Sometimes when you're playing king of the hill, you have to go down, but you're pulling people with you so that the momentum can swing you right back up on the, the, the top of the pile again. The last thing I see in those two verses is that Abner's pretended generosity in giving Israel to David. It's not only hypocritical, but it is liberal to the core. Now, I define a modern liberal as a person who gives away everything that he doesn't own, okay? Abner didn't legally own Israel, but he gave it away anyway. He took what was not his, whether a woman or a country, and he gave away what was not his. And by the way, there's a later verse that's going to indicate Abner gave to David all of the concubines, all of the wives of Saul, 
Uh, that was, again, a symbolic thing, but it wasn't his to give. Okay, he was a liberal. He was a rhino, Republican liberal to the core. Okay, and who got hurt in the process? Well, obviously, Ishbosheth did. I don't feel sorry for him at all. He had willfully been a part of the, uh, of the conspiracy from the beginning, so he got what he deserved. The person that I feel sorry for is Rizba, Rizba the concubine. It was Rizba who was violated by Abner as a pawn in a political game. She's the one who was defiled, and she's probably the one crying out to God, Lord, why? Why me? Why do I have to go through all of this suffering? This was a huge humiliation. Abner didn't marry her. As the next king, he simply took her, slept with her, no doubt in a public ceremony much like Absalom was going to do in chapter 16. I cannot imagine the grief that Rizba would feel at this violation. But is this any different from the way our nation's leaders have metaphorically raped and pillaged our country? They have violated the states. They have violated the Constitution. They metaphorically sleep with anything and anyone who can centralize power in the federal government and assist in making us part of the world federalist organization. And they've been unbelievably successful. Now, have our unconstitutional leaders given concessions to David's? Well, yeah, they have, uh, but it's out of necessity, and they've not relinquished power. They've not changed their philo philosophy of government, and we are still headed toward the same cliff no matter which party's president uh, is in power. So very few, even in the Republican Party, hold to the strict constitutionalism in the small government of King David or for George Washington, for that matter. Uh, I'm not confident that Mitt Romney will be any more constitutional than Obama. Uh, he'll take away something that is not his, and he'll give back something to us that is not his to give. His history, his rhetoric, his campaign show it. And again, I'm not telling you how to vote. Uh, uh, if you feel that the lesser of two evils is a better vote, I can even give you a couple scriptures that on occasion say that you can go for a person who's not a, a great person to go for. All I'm saying is... I am utterly cynical that any Abner, whether he is a, a Mitt Romney or whether he is an Obama, that any Abner is going to make a lick of difference in terms of uh, bringing needed changes in America. We need to completely re-examine our, approach, our approaches to politics. Okay, Roman numeral two. As we'll see in this chapter, even David succumbs to playing these political power plays. He tries to avoid it later on in the chapter, but not here. And I think it's very, very evident. He acts just like modern Republicans do. We've already seen in verse 12 that Abner and David are the true contestants for the kingdom. I don't even, who knows what Abner has up his sleeve with David. We're not entirely told. But for now, the offer is given to David, and it looks to David like this is an answer to prayer. He's probably, praise the Lord, we're making two steps forward, right? That's what David is saying here. Verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. What could be better? David's thinking, here's the answer. It would have been very, very tempting to go along with this power politics play that Abner is engaging in. Uh, Joab has become less and less cooperative. He's fearful of Joab. And David is thinking that if he replaces Joab with Abner as uh, the, the head of the armies, he can have his cake and eat it too. Now, Joab has other ideas, and we'll get to that in another sermon. 
But in verse 13, David agrees. David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you. Now, Abner has driven a hard bargain. He wants David to treat him as king, to covenant with him as if the whole land belongs to Abner. And this puts Abner in a better position, as I said, to negotiate a strong office for himself, to be the leader of all David's armies. But I want you to notice, David is a tough negotiator as well. Verse 13 shows that he gives Abner a test. And David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that's an imperative, you shall not see my face. So already he's putting Abner in his place. He's saying, look, I want, to, I want everybody to know who's in charge. I'm in charge in this negotiation. Uh, you're not going to be negotiating with me from a position of power. You shall not see my face unless you first bring me call Saul's daughter when you come to see my face. Now, last week I explained why I think David was absolutely wrong in doing this, but symbolically, I think you can understand it. Abner had used sexual possession of Saul's concubine as a symbol that he was the heir to Saul. It would take some swallowing of pride for Abner to fulfill David's demand because it would nullify the significance of what he had done. David's engaging in one-upmanship, one-upping Abner. He is saying, I insist that the daughter of Saul, Princess Michal, be given to me as my rightful due. So that's a step up from a concubine of Saul. And since there were no other heirs to the throne except for Mephibosheth, who was a cripple, this symbolically solidified David into the position as being the only rightful heir. So I think you can see why David did it, even though it was wrong. But David did one more thing to humble Abner. He negotiated with Ishbosheth on this matter, not with Abner. Verse 14 was a put down to everything Abner had said in verse 12. It's a tacit statement, Abner is not the legitimate heir. Uh, David's willing to make Abner the chief commander, but it's going to be on his own terms. So he's a tough negotiator. Look at verse 14. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Though Abner is the agent who actually brings Michal to David, negotiates a deal with David, David has already made his point to all of Israel. His point was, I am the only legitimate surviving heir to the throne of Saul. But though David scored huge points in this exchange, Michal and Paul Teal, sometimes called Paul T for short, Michal and Paul Teal are two more casualties to David's willingness to temporarily play the same power politics as Abner. So his compromise would treat people as pawns to be used, sacrificed, and discarded. And uh, if you review last week's message, I think you'll agree. This is exactly the situation with, with Michal. Not a very bright spot in David's life. Okay, verses 15 through 16. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. I want you to notice that it's God himself who calls Paul T, her husband, or Paul Teal. Uh, some people say, oh, yeah, it, it wasn't a real marriage. No, this was a real marriage. God says that uh, she was married and that uh, he was her husband. So it says, Ishbosheth sent, took her from her husband, from Paul Teal, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. 
Now, from one perspective, I can understand what David did. He had never agreed to the divorce in the first place. For the first time in Israel's history, Saul had let me call. Well, at least that's recorded history. Saul had let me call have a no-fault divorce. It was not biblical. But you don't solve an unbiblical divorce and remarriage with another unbiblical divorce and remarriage. Tragic as Saul's giving of Michal to Paul Teal was, Deuteronomy 24 forever forbade David from taking her back. Okay, it wasn't the best marriage. Jeremiah 3, 1 says what David did polluted the land. It defiled uh, the land. And the pain to both Michal and Paul Teal were that they had been married to each other for somewhere between 16 and 17 years. He's breaking up an established marriage. It's very clear. Paul Teal loves Michal. He is just heartbroken with what is going on here. And so they both are illustrations that there will always be pawns and uh, sacrificial lambs in power politics. Machiavelli's book, The Prince, was being lived out in this story. Now, I, I don't excuse anything that Paul Thiel was in sin when he took her in the first place. But it was better once it happened that you just leave it that way. So in conclusion, I want to say that power politics must be shunned by Christians and we should pursue the application of biblical law with all of our hearts. That's the only thing that will help to sort through the sticky jurisdictional issues, the tough ethical problems, the puzzling methodological issues of government. If there's one thing that this passage drives home to me, it is the Scripture that says, to the law and to the prophets, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, he's talking about the Bible here, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Don't look to pagan philosophy for light. Don't look to the Republican political playbook for light. You look to the Scriptures. We need that light. And I want to end by encouraging you that Scripture promises an increase of that light in everyday living, including politics. Believe it or not, that light's already come. We're not waiting for it. It's already happened. Jesus said, or God said to Jesus, I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But Scripture says that this light started in darkness, then it began to dawn, then to grow brighter, and it's destined to completely fill the whole earth with the light of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. But it's only, God says, it's only as Christians by faith, apply those scriptures in everything that they do that we're going to see this light spread. For example, God says, For law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light to the peoples. Now, Peter said, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God has chosen to transform the world as the church is willing to believe and apply the light of the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Humanistic policies, I guarantee you, they will never bring the peace that the United Nations longs for. It'll never happen. Only Christ's grace, applying His Word by the zeal of God, can accomplish that, and that is exactly what Isaiah 9 promises will happen. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the incarnation, right? Jesus has come. It goes on to say, and the government will be upon his shoulder. That's Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven 
and on earth. The government's already on his shoulder. It goes on, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's a gradual growth. Upon the throne of David, which Acts 2 says, Jesus is sitting on the throne of David. He's ruling from there. And over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And here's the key phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Not the zeal of power politics. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. And this is what gives us confidence to do the right thing in politics and leave the results up to God because it's not just what we're doing that counts. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that accomplishes this. And if you're not convinced that God's zeal is all that is needed through our efforts to transform the world, well, you're going to tend to always be tempted by power politics because it seems to be the shortcut. It's the easy way of doing things. And that's where evangelicals have gone wrong. They trust in a messianic state just as much as the liberals do. And those seem to be the only two options before us, the spiritual power of God or the humanistic power of man. And it's as the light of Christian politics penetrates the darkness of pagan politics more and more that you're eventually going to find power politics completely replaced by Romans 13 servant politics. We'll find respect for life. We'll never again find individuals needing to be sacrificed for the general good. Law will rule, not pragmatism. Isaiah 11.9 prophesies, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what I want to encourage you to do is to add some of that knowledge of the Lord by pouring God's law into our nation. Now you might think, what can I do? I'm just one individual. All I've got is a bucket, a bucket of the light of Scripture. Well, start pouring the little bucket that you have and convincing other Christians to pour that bucket, and you're going to find the level of this knowledge of the Lord rising in our nation until at some point, if Christians keep doing this, the knowledge of the Lord will be as deep upon planet Earth as the waters cover the ocean beds. I don't think some places you could even get any instrument down there. It's so deep, right? So that's how deep we want the knowledge of the Lord in America. And he promises that will eventually uh, happen. That it's the knowledge of Christ's kingdom uh, that, and the, the law of God. It's the only answer to the perpetual problems of humanistic power politics. God's grace and his law must transform it all. And to him be the glory. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word that warns us, that encourages us, that gives us guidance. And I pray we would heed it as a light in the darkness, that we would not be stumbling around, even though there is so much darkness that confuses us, but we would use the flashlight of your word, of your law, to guide all of our actions, including our actions in politics. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.